The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about the dark side of the Internet. I mean, we all love the Internet. We use it. We use social media. It is just... It is a playground, but it is kind of a scary playground. And we have a wonderful guest today coming to us from New York City. And he wrote this book called Hacking the Future, Privacy, Identity, and Anonymity on the Web by Cole Stryker. And let me tell you a little bit about Cole. By the way, he is the author of Epic Win for Anonymous. He's a good-looking young man, and he. this is a little bit about him. Cole Stryker is a writer and media strategist in New York City, and he is the author of Epic Win for Anonymous, as I said, and he's also the author of this new book that I have sitting in right in front of me. And uh, the first book told the story of the Internet's mimetic playground called 4chan and the hacktivist group Anonymous, from which it spawned. He's also authored this new book that I told you about, which is a broader history of anonymity as a social construct that dissects how identity brokers like Facebook and Google control and monetize our identity. And it explains how the recent manifestations of anonymous activism and free speech are raging against these kinds of controls. Stryker, his writings have appeared in The Nation, Salon, Vice, Boing Boing, The New York Observer, The Huffington Post, Storyboard, uh, Rhizome, Slactory, uh, Nerve, Palm Matters, and elsewhere. A lot of those I don't even know. <laughs> Stryker has been interviewed about his writings by the BBC, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, NPR, Reuters, the Daily Beast, the Atlantic, ABC News, oh, and so many more different um, TV and radio and all sorts of different shows. So we're so thrilled to have him join us and, and learn about what it means about the hacking the future and what what we can do about it and all the things that are a little bit scary but that we really need to know about. Thanks so much for joining us all the way from New York, Cole. Thanks for having me, Mari. Okay, so why is it that you wrote this book? Well, um, I wrote Hacking the Future because I had spent the last several years researching the hacktivist group known as Anonymous and following their activity online. And um, I came to recognize that the, the Internet was basically being pulled in two different directions. Um, on the one side, you have groups like Anonymous and, and other groups like WikiLeaks, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, and other 
sort of pro-privacy, pro-openness activist groups that are advocating for a free and open web that that has privacy built into it. And then on the other side, you have uh, organizations like Facebook and Google, as well as some branches of the U.S. government that are pushing for uh, what, what they call a persistent identity, um, which would basically mean um, that everything you say and do online is tracked and associated with your with your personhood. Yeah. And uh, there's obviously some pros and cons to each uh, outcome, and so the book is an attempt to uh, discuss that and also advocate for anonymity, which I think is an unfairly maligned concept. Is there really such a thing as anonymity on the Internet? Well, I think that uh, it depends on how you frame this question. I think that um, if you are really up to no good, there are people within the government that can probably find you. Um, However, uh, there are tools available that are free and very easy to use that you can employ in tandem with tactics such as buying a new computer and logging in every day from a coffee shop um, that will keep you relatively anonymous online, but it's not easy to do. No. And you know, who was I talking to? I was talking to somebody in law enforcement and they were saying that those people that, that use those tools are the ones that are targeted (laughs) because that's what law enforcement thinks. If you're using those tools, you must be doing it to hide something. Have you heard that too? Well, there are there are some more paranoid privacy advocates than others, but I've heard people go so far as to say that um, Tor, which is the most popular free uh, tool for anonymizing one's web traffic, because it was originally developed by the United States government, is um, is basically a, a secret spying tool. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if I believe that, but um, uh, that, that there's definitely an argument to be made that one's behavior in attempting to anonymize the web traffic that they are responsible for is sending red flags to people who may be surveilling their behavior. Mm, Yeah, yeah. So what's a hacktivist? I mean, you use a lot of language that that I don't think I understand all of it. And uh, as I read your book, I start to understand more of it. But I think there's a lot of words that the, that you're using that I think are not in the everyday vocabulary, and especially for those of us who are in the older generation, maybe the younger generation knows it, but I think all of us need to understand it. So what, what's a hacktivist? A hacktivist can be defined as, um, well, obviously it's a portmanteau of the, ter- the words activist and hacker. Um, it's a word that's sort of thrown around loosely these days because a lot of people who would call themselves hacktivists aren't, don't actually have a whole lot of technical acumen. They refer to their behavior as hacking um, when it could more tech, more more accurately be described as social engineering. Uh-huh. So if I'm not actually hacking into a computer network using using programming, um, but fooling someone into handing me over their password, that's technically social engineering. But it's in a way you could call it hacking because you're you're hacking someone's intelligence. Right, um, right. You're not hacking a computer network. You're hacking a social uh, system. Right. So right. A, a hacktivist is someone who employs some form of hacking in order to achieve a certain end, uh, typically something that they perceive to be for the good of the for the good of the public. Right. Right. 
And what is a, a cyberpunk? A cypherpunk or a, a cy- cyberpunk? A cypherpunk. <laughs> I'm sorry, not cyberpunk. Well, cyberpunk sounds like a teenager. <laughs> it actually came from the word cyberpunk, which is which was an old science fiction. Well, it's, it's it was coined in the the sci-fi of the of the 80s um, to refer to post-apocalyptic literature or or at least post futuristic literature that referred to a, a future world where um, things are a lot more technologically advanced than they are now. Um, anyway, I won't get into that, but okay. a, cypher, a cypherpunk is, refers to a group of people that in the, um, well, in the late 80s and early 90s mostly, uh, were responsible for essentially kick-starting a lot of the hacktivist movements that we see nowadays by making cryptography readily available and easy to use mm. and um, advocating and sp- basically spreading the gospel of the virtues of privacy and the tools that it takes to maintain one's privacy online. So so who are some of those people? I mean, I know about EPIC, you know, the Electronic Privacy Information Center and there's, you know, Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, and, you know, I, I know a lot of these people in the privacy realm. Are are we talking about um, maybe Privacy Journal? Who are, who are we talking about that are the cypherpunks that are the uh, grandfathers of, of Privacy mm-hmm. Online? Well, it really boils down to three gentlemen. Um, one is Philip Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry. Let me back up. Um, the, the three core people are Tim May, Eric Hughes, and John Gilmore. Um, and together they kind of codified the ideology of the cypherpunks hmm. um, and maintained a mailing list that uh, that um, spread ideas and philosophy and um, new technology. Um, and a lot of today's big names in the hacker community are people who were hanging around on this list um, and, and sharing information with friends as kids, really. Hmm. Uh, you know, these are the people that now run security companies and, and work for large security contractors for the U.S. government even. Hmm. Um, but it, the, these three guys, and then and I threw Philip Zimmerman in there as well, who came, a little, came onto the scene a little bit later but was uh, responsible for creating and disseminating PGP, Pretty Good Privacy, which right. is a, a tool that's um, not the easiest in the world to use but is open source and free and, and relatively secure. Yeah, that's the problem is that it's not that easy. I tried to use it. And, you know, you have to make something user-friendly for people to be able to use it. So, well, he's working on a project now that's, that yeah. aims to do just that. Hmm. Um, and, the, you know, the, every, the tools get easier to use every day. And I, I think that the key is to use, use a tool that is proportional to the secrecy that you require. Um, if you're someone that is trying to hide something from a, a tyrannical dictator, obviously you want the highest level of security. Right. But if right. you're just trying to keep your parents from snooping into your <laughs> your email or something like that, there are other tools. Right. And then, of course, if you want to protect your financial information, that's that's right. a little bit higher. Yeah. Right. So let's talk about the history of anonymous speech. Anyway, I know that's been a big uh, research area for you. Yes, the the first chapter of my book sort of lays the groundwork of 
what, why anonymous speech is important, where it came from. Um, it's certainly not unique to the digital age. Um, and, you know, it, it really goes back as far as, as publication. Um, and for various reasons, writers uh, would choose to operate under a pseudonym or, or completely anonymous. Right. Um, one reason might be modesty. Uh, an example of that would be Lewis Carroll writing uh, Alice in Wonderland. He, right. he didn't want his name to be associated with what some might consider frivolous children's stories. Although uh, they so think he, it was really a political farce, right? <laughs> right. Well, there, you know, another <laughs> example of that is uh, Jonathan Swift writing Gulliver's Travels. Right. Um, that's something that was tremendously critical of the church and the crown and something that probably would have cost him some social capital had he been unmasked and, uh, you know, causing mischief in those days by throwing stones at the people in power was definitely something that would require anonymity or pseudonymity. Mm-hmm. Um, another reason might be sexism, because women in, in you know previous generations were not considered to be fit for publication, and it was not something that they would want to associate with their name, so they would operate under pseudonyms like George Eliot. And it also prevented them from getting criticized by people who would dismiss their books simply because they were women, right. and choosing to write under the a nom de plume of a man would, would enable them to avoid that. And then the most important reason, obviously, is political, with people who were actively directly speaking out against um, the royal family in England, for instance. Uh, there's an example in my book of this guy, John Twin, who, who wasn't even an author but a publisher, who happened to, you know, he made the mistake of publishing a book that that was written that had some negative comments in it about about the ruling class, and, and he was um, basically had his body cut up into pieces and put on spikes around mm. the town um, to, as an example. Right. So we have this rich heritage of, of people using anonymity and, and pseudonymity to protect themselves so that they can speak truth to power. Right. And that continued very strongly with the um, birth of our country um, with examples like the Federalist Papers and um, Thomas Paine writing under a pseudonym. And um, you know, there are countless examples, really, uh, all the way up through the Civil War abolitionist period, uh, the Civil Rights period, where people basically needed a way to get a message out but didn't want to be thrown in jail or killed. Right. And right. the only way to do it was through anonymity. So the purpose of this, this history for me it, is that it shows us that when we think of anonymity, we shouldn't think of someone who's trying to hide their bad behavior. Right, right. Um, you know, social mores and law is fluid, and therefore we should recognize that there may be a reason that someone might want to hide their behavior. I mean, even today we see a lot of persecution in other countries especially yes. of um, homosexuals, uh, but even places in, in the U.S., uh, there, I'm sure there are teenagers who seek um, you know, support online that they wouldn't otherwise get and they, would, they don't want their family to find out um, because they would be shunned or, or otherwise uh, punished. And uh, so that, that's kind of my position is that anonymity is something that uh, protects us from an imperfect world.
Yeah, and doesn't it really allow us to have free speech, really free speech? <laughs> well, yes. I, I, you know, one of my big talking points is that uh, free speech isn't very free when it gets you thrown in jail. Yeah, right. Um, you know, we might we might have free speech on paper, or, or you could even go so far as to say free speech isn't isn't that free if it gets if it turns you into a social outcast. Right. Um, Yes, I think it's important for people to speak out under their own name at times because that sort of moves progress forward. Um, but uh, I also think that we shouldn't expect people to, who, who are marginalized to, to speak out under their own identity. Um, and that's their choice to make, and I think there are very good reasons for hiding your identity when, when you want to speak out against um, the majority. Right. I, you know, then the other side of it is I've had people who come to me who... Um, who've been victims of identity theft where someone used their name and they want to be able to prove that that's not them. Do you know what I mean? So that becomes where you try and find out who was that, who said it, it wasn't me. So there's, you know, there's the the challenge where, um, you know, when you really do want to find out who said it because they, or they defamed you or they want, or you want to take it down, you know, because right. this is something that is is not true, and it's it's viral on the internet. So, right. you know, there there's there's the the benefits and the burdens that are there, right? Of course, and this is the the argument that we have for what's become known as driver's licenses for the web, which is a term that that's been thrown around a little bit, usually not in such stark terms. But um, basically, what it what it would mean is that the internet would be updated so that everything you say and do is traced to a specific identity and you wouldn't be able to log into any websites without using this persistent ID. And the idea, the, the philosophy behind that is that you wouldn't have something like identity theft because everyone would have an ID card and you wouldn't be able to pretend that you're someone else because any pretending that you would do wouldn't be associated with that ID card. But I, I think that there are a few problems with that theory, and one is that in today's world, we all have driver's licenses, and how many, how often do you hear about someone that got arrested with a fake driver's license? Exactly, yeah. Um, my, well, I, I spoke to dozens of really who, people whom I consider to be some of the smartest people in the world, hackers, um, some of them who hack for fun and others who work at... at um, prominent security companies that have, are using their, their, their intelligence <laughs> to prevent people from hacking right, right. into certain systems. And across the board, the people that I spoke with said, you know, hackers, they, they get their jollies by finding a way to route around a system of control. Right. So if, if we were somehow able, and this is arguable if it's even possible, uh, if we were somehow able to bring about a scenario like driver's licenses for the web so that your IP address is, is permanently associated with an account that you would have in your name, um, that they would somehow figure out a way to spoof that identity. Right, right. Uh, because that's what they do. It's what they've always done. And uh, there are, there's always going to be some smart 14-year-old who's one step ahead of um, a, any security technology. Yes. It's just a matter of time. It just seems to me that we do need to have some uh, redress for people who are harmed by somebody using their identity or they're harmed by by some defamation or something that puts them in a false light. 
you know, so it, that's the thing is that right now we are kind of, um, we don't have that ability because of the First Amendment. And I'm one who really supports the First Amendment of freedom of speech, but there should be times when people are harmed and it's an intentional harm that um, that there's some redress. So it's just finding that balance where you don't go to the point where you are, you know, carrying your ID everywhere you go, you know? Right. Right. Well, I think that one... It's not a perfect solution to that problem, and I, I will definitely agree with you that it's a, a very real problem. Um, one, I think one solution is that um, we do have places that behave like walled gardens that are highly manicured where people are associated with their identity, and that's, that's a place that maybe is like Facebook, um, where if someone says something about you on Facebook, there are mechanisms by which you can take that content down or um, use your real account to prove that you didn't say something. Right. Uh, again, it's definitely not a perfect place no. because you hear about stories every day coming out of Facebook about people who are victimized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, even more than anywhere else, really, because that's where everybody is. But, um, you know, it's. I think that it's good that Facebook is pretty vigilant about making sure that its community is a place where people feel safe to be. Um, but anyway, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I recognize get, the problem. Yeah, I had a um, couple of things, a little examples that, uh, that, that were interesting. One lady had called me, and 20 or 30 years before she had belonged to an, uh, an organization that she would never belong to right now, and so somebody put up on the website that she had been a member of this organization. And so she contacted the website and said, you know, I have nothing to do with that anymore. I was a teenager. You know, I'm almost 50 years old. This is hurting me because it's going to interfere with my career, et cetera, et cetera. And they wouldn't take it down. They said, it's the truth that you did belong and we won't take it down. So, you know, that was one challenge for her because it was the truth, you know, and uh, but it's like, can you ever, you know, forget on the Internet? You know, that's the whole thing. The future of your reputation on the Internet is going to be, is it decided by what you did 30 years ago? You know, right. This is a, I actually wrote about this yeah. problem for um, recently, which referred to a case that you might have come across where a prominent blog called Jezebel here in New York um, compiled a list of, of teenagers who had tweeted out racial epithets regarding Obama during the election. Mm. And essentially, what these, what's, what's the, the situation that all these kids are dealing with now is um, whenever you Google any of their names, the first Google result that pops up is this kid using the N-word to describe the president. Oh, goodness. And it's... I think that there are a lot of people who are arguing right now that that's a good thing that they needed to be taught a lesson, and that uh, and that this should you know this is something that goes to show everyone else that the words you say will will follow you around. Right. My position is that it's a little bit more complicated than that, yes. and that when you when you think about the permanence of the web and how once something is there, it's there forever. Is it is it proportional that the punishment for this Right. Violation of norms is such that these kids will have 
this following them around the for the rest of their lives. Right. And every time they ever try to apply for a job, right. anytime they ever want meet someone and want to go out on a date with somebody, the first thing that they're going to do is Google them and, and see this this awful thing yeah. that they said when they were a kid. Yeah, so exactly. I think that, I don't think that this is a, a, a case where we need a regulatory regime to prevent blogs from writing this, these things. I think this is a call for parents and children to become more educated about the risks involved. And I mean, of, of course, the, the root of the problem here is, is racism, but setting that aside as, as something that's not really in my wheelhouse to try to solve. Uh, but you know, I, but I, but something like that, where kids do stupid things together, or they say stupid things, and obviously you're right. It's, it's something that we do want to say. Hey, you know, you you cannot talk like that. However, you know, if someone gets razzed or hazed about the effort, if they'll commit suicide, you know, I mean, something like that right. can cause somebody to do that if it's just viral on the internet. And so I think there has to be some kind of a, there was a book I read called Delete, you know, <laughs> about, you know, can you, can you really forget or can you get things off the Internet? And it's, it's really a tough situation because people do grow up and people do change and people do learn. And, and, um, but you can't forget on the Internet. And I know there's a, a CEO that I interviewed on my show, um, Reputation Defender. Now I think they're just called Reputation or something. But they used to be called Reputation Defender. And what they would do if someone said something bad about you as a professional, they would just add a ton more stuff so that it would come up on Google maybe 10 page down the line instead of right away. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's... Yeah. Well, it's it's something that I think that we're experiencing some growing pains right now as a society because our our technology is moving faster than our ability to keep up with it uh, yes. in terms of education. But I think that that's changing quickly as 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 young people recognize the harsh realities of uh, reputation online. Yeah. So, you know, people will sometimes say, oh, Mari, you know, why do you think anonymity is so important? You know, if I've done nothing wrong and I have nothing to hide, what do I care? What do you say to people like that? It's a good question, and it's certainly one that I've been hearing a lot since I wrote this book. Um, I think that when people think of anonymity, they think of someone who's either a criminal or a troll who is trying to do something bad and wants to hide their tracks. And like we talked about earlier, I, I don't think this is the case. And I think that the, the position of I've done wrong, I've, nothing, I've done nothing wrong, I have nothing to hide is, is born of, of privilege. Um, I think this is, a, this is a position that's been um, elucidated by Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook right. recently, um, as well as his sister, who was sort of the inspiration for the book um, when she said that anonymity on the internet has to go away. Um, You know, like when I say that this is born of privilege, what I mean is that Mark Zuckerberg, as an example, is a white, male, very wealthy, childless person um, living in the freest country in the world who doesn't have to worry about a boss finding something out about him. Um, he really, in terms of relative privilege, he is at the top of the list. And why that's important is the things he does are more likely to be accepted by the community around him. Um, 
On the other hand, if I am a, a transsexual teenager living in the Middle East somewhere, um, very marginalized, right. doesn't have a lot of privilege, socially speaking, um, behavior that would be considered okay here right. in some places definitely is not considered okay. So I think that the I've done nothing wrong, I have nothing to hide. It assumes a level of universal comfort and privilege that most people don't enjoy. And you know, when you talk about Mark Zuckerberg, when he got married, he was very angry that his wedding pictures went up on, on the web. So, yeah. you know, I mean, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, but we are out of time. And Cole, this is such a great book, and I, I'm so glad you're doing this work. So um, when, uh, we'll give you your name of your book, Hacking the Future, Privacy, Identity, and Anonymity on the Web. And why don't you just give your website, Cole? Sure. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at Cole Stryker, which is my name, or on Tumblr, which is striker.tumblr.com. And then there's also uh, just colestriker.com. And Stryker is spelled S-T-R-Y-K-E-R. Hey, we will keep in touch. And next book, you got to give me a call and we'll do it again, all right? All right, thanks, Mark. All right, keep up the great work, Cole. Take care. You, thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. There you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and write us emails about who you think we should talk to and what we should do about privacy in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.